Now the officials trying to line up the players. The face-off will take place to the right of Mike Richter. They have readjusted the clock. It's one and six-tenths seconds now. So five-tenths of a second has been added. It will be Craig McTavish on the draw for the Rangers. And apparently Pavel Bore, the, the hope here is that he'll get a shot, shot off. McTavish is going to go to his knees, Bob. I would have to think McTavish will just go to his knees in front of his goaltender. So the Russian rocket, Pavel Bore, with a desperation effort. Pat Quinn hoping he gets the shot off. Bore and McTavish with one and six ten seconds. Puck is dropped. McTavish controls, and it's all over. The New York Rangers have won the Stanley Cup. That most people did not think they would hear in their lifetime. And the Rangers onto the ice to pound each other. Mike Richter being congratulated, and they are going wild here at Madison Square Garden. The New York Rangers have won the Stanley Cup. <laughs> Hey now, hey now, it is Steve Bennett. This is the Sportscasters Podcast, Season 9, Episode 5. And after 285 plus episodes, uh, sometimes it's rare uh, that I am as excited as I am about what I have for you today, which is tons of fun, uh, a really great podcast. We'll get to it in a second. Don't forget you can find all of those 285 plus podcasts on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also uh, find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. And you can email me, Steve Bennett, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Now, in a lot of ways, today could be the end of one era of the sportscasters and the start of another. And I'm going to tell you more about what that means after the interviews in the uh, One Last Things, the One Last Things segment. One Last Thing today will be about uh, my decision uh, to do what I'm going to do and, uh, and and the origin of it and why I decided to do it and um, uh, the motivation for it. And I'll explain everything as I have entered a partnership with Slate.com. And I'll tell you about that. And I'll even explain that maybe even using the word partnership is a bit of a stretch. Uh, but there is some value uh, to me working with them on their project. And I'll explain it all in one last thing. Before we get to that, in a second, we'll take a break, of course, and we'll start the show off with Jimmy Traina. Uh, Jimmy Traina is from Sports Illustrated. He writes hot clicks every day. He also does the sports media podcast on SI ever since Richard Deitch left for The Athletic. He's a good friend of the program. And uh, luckily, we didn't let someone on text message kind of ruin our relationship. What happened was is I emailed Jimmy around Thanksgiving time and said, hey, man, uh, you want to come on the show? And he said, you know, I'm busy right now. Can we do it after the holidays? And I said, of course. Uh, and I emailed him after the holidays. And he said, hey, uh, how about the week of January 7th? So I said, that sounds great. Now, our emails have been kind of a little spotty getting to and fro each other. So I figured I'd send him a text message. I have his phone number. So I texted him and said, hey, Jimmy, are we still on the week of the 7th next week? And Jimmy wrote back and said, sure, that, that still works for me. 
And then on Monday the 7th, I texted him and said, what day works? And uh, didn't hear back. And the whole week went by. I never heard from Jimmy. I promoted it. And I was really pissed off. And I was going to come on here and slam him. And luckily, I didn't. A few weeks later, Jimmy emails me again and says, hey, man, I'm sorry I haven't been back to you. But if you still want me to come on, I will. And I'm thinking, wow, this guy's got balls. So I email him and I lay the whole case out. And he's like, wait a minute. I don't remember texting with you. And I said, oh, boy. And I sent him the number. And, of course, it's an old number that he no longer has. So someone, instead of just saying, hey, I'm not Jimmy Traina, strung me along, you know, and made it seem like Jimmy was blowing me off, uh, which, you know, fuck that guy. But anyway, Jimmy Traina is on the podcast today. Recorded this about 10 days ago or so. A lot of fun, though. Love having Jimmy on. We do, like, 35 minutes. After that, we'll take a break. And I got a crazy story for you in the book club. I, I, I do not understand TV critics. We'll go over all that in the book club. Uh, and then we'll come back. And, and really, what I'm most excited about today, the group VP of communications from the National Hockey League is a guy named John Delapina. And Mr. Delapina, in 1994, worked for the New York Daily News, where he covered the New Jersey Devils and hockey in general. And spent a lot of time in 94, obviously, with the Devils and Rangers' epic seven-game series. And then, as he puts it, the Daily News was all hands on deck with the Rangers during the Stanley Cup. We do 50 minutes on basically the 94 playoffs. It's awesome. It's one of the most fun things I've done on this podcast in a long time. Uh, Delapina is is geeky and pumped about it as I am, which is really cool. And we just have a lot of fun doing this, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Uh, and I'd love any feedback on it, the sportscasters at gmail.com. Uh, another thing is we have a partnership to announce with the Tennis Podcast. Uh, so I'll do that. Of course, I'll plug greetings from Allentown. I was also on the Place to Be Nation podcast this week, making my debut with Scott and Justin. I'll have to tell you about that. So there's a lot to do at the end of the show. But I like to really get going and get to the interviews. I know most people are here for that. We got a great one off the top with Jimmy Trena. Uh, We'll bring him into the Howard Stern theme song like usual. Uh, Then I'll be back for a quick book club update. And after that, John Delapina, the VP of Group Communications for the National Hockey League, to talk 94 NHL, New York Rangers. Lots of fun. Let's get going. Let's do this. I'm pumped. We'll be right back. Our first guest today is a longtime friend of the Sportscasters podcast. We've been with him since his first run at SI through his work at Fox Sports and now back at SI again where he writes hot clicks and hosts these SI Sports Media podcast. A warm Sportscasters welcome to Jimmy Trainer. What's up, Jimmy? How you doing, buddy? Welcome back. I'm good. How are you? Doing very good. I hear that you're more of a running quarterback. I'm not positive about it, but I hear... Generally speaking, you're more of a runner. I mean, do we even have to 
talk about him. Well, how long can you earn $3 million a year on television and humiliate yourself? And this is the third time in like two and a half months, right? Because people keep watching and the show keeps getting attention. So like for ESPN, it makes enough sense. I mean, people are, are watching. I mean, the attention is coming in the in the, the, the most negative possible way, right? I mean, they're watching well, for I, buffoonery. I I don't I don't know if I don't think that's not the case with everyone. I think there are some people who genuinely um, like him and and his show. Listen, it, you know, I guess there's something for everyone. To me, it's you know, I stopped being surprised by um, what people like and people sort of being fooled into thinking something is good or real. Uh, happened in about November of 2016. So if people can vote for Donald Trump, people can watch Stephen A. Smith. Just, you know, can't figure it out. Well, I think in print, maybe there's a higher standard. You know, like if he was writing a column in... Well, yeah, he'd have an editor and multiple editors who would say, you know, this is wrong. Um, (laughs) But on TV, on live TV, you know, just let it fly and... I would say that if he was, uh, do you think that this would be a bigger deal if he was a white analyst saying that the black quarterback was more of a runner? I mean, he would be then he'd he'd be in danger. I think it'd be a different conversation. Wait, if it was a wait, say that again. I'm trying if, to press it in my brain. It would be if Stephen A. Smith was white and said the same thing. Right, it'd be a much bigger deal because there'd be a racial implication that he's just assuming the black quarterback's a runner. Right, right. Um... Yeah, I guess I guess if if it was a white analyst saying the black quarterback was a run first quarterback, I don't know. I mean, listen, we went through this this entire thing with um, um, Lamar Jackson, Ravens quarterback. Yeah, Lamar Jackson, but he is a runner. You, so, can, you can prove that with stat. Like you could back that argument up. Like there's right, no argument right, right. for Haskins. You know what I mean? You can't. There's no argument there. He had 50 TDs. Well, I think the argument there is that he one yards rushing. Yeah, I think the argument there is that he just. He, I, I I would be willing to bet money Stephen A probably didn't watch one Ohio State game all year. So um I don't know. Yeah, some people would some people would definitely make a big deal about it. Um you know. Let me that's ask just let me ask gonna you, happen. Let me ask you this cuz I want to see what's on your mind. Let's say you were on Deich, yeah. you were on Deitch's show right now and you were doing a round table. Uh, what would be some of the topics you'd want to talk about the most? And I'm not being cheap here. I'm, I'm just legitimately curious. Like, football's over. Well, I have my own show, so I can do my own topics on my own show. I don't have to do it on someone else's show. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I, and I, <laughs> let's say, okay, let's um, rephrase. Let's say you had Marshawn Don, and you didn't want to no. talk about uh, the, the Pope. And I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm not being lazy. No, I'm legitimately think... curious. No, I understand. Uh, I'm just kidding, Ron. Um, I mean, obviously, the Adnan Vert thing I think is a is the story of the week in terms of sports media. Um, I find it interesting that this AFAAF league that starts this weekend is actually going to have a game. I thought all the games were on CBS Sports Network. They're actually going to have a game on the main CBS network, which I find shocking. Um, I think the other big stories right now are um, 
well, I'm trying to think of what I've if I've written about anything this week. I mean, the Virk story has dominated the week in terms of sports media. I think the Super Bowl by now was too old, so I probably wouldn't want to discuss anything uh, related to the Super Bowl. This is obviously a very quiet time now in sports, so the, you, there's not going to be as much news going on. Um, and just in terms of everything, it's sort of everything slows down after the Super Bowl. Um, so that that really, I mean, for now, I think the Burke story is really the you know what what can what happens with the AFS, and um, I guess that's really those are the two big stories for me right now. I don't think there's much else going on. I mean, I know Charles Woodson left left uh, the ESPN pregame show, but I don't. You know, with all due respect to my friend Andrew Marshan in the New York Post, I thought they uh, they really pulled a fast one by using a headline that said, "You know, big shakeup on ESPN pregame show." There's no shakeup; one guy's leaving. Right, they got thirty guys coming in and out every year. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think if Rex Ryan leaves, and you know, then, then maybe it's a little bit of a story. But just Charles Woodson leaving is not that big of a deal. Uh, you know, there's really nothing going on with the NBA in terms of media right now and announcers. Um, nothing really on the baseball front. Uh, the baseball rule changes are there, but that really is not a sports media thing. So it's kind of quiet outside of Adnan Verk. Well, I got a couple of good ones, but you, you keep mentioning Verk, so let's go with him for a second. Yeah. What What's ESPN? What are they doing here? Are they just are they sending a message saying like? Enough, you know, like in this skip, this isn't the skipper era, you know, this, this is going to change. We're not going to have leaks like this anymore. And if we got to fire a guy publicly, you know, humiliate him like this, we're going to do it. Is it a more just this case kind of a thing where they just felt the leak was too egregious? I mean, what do you think ESPN's angle is here? Well, I don't think it's that simple because I think there's there were a couple of things here that sort of happened at once that led to them firing Verk. I mean, obviously, he got caught leaking the information. He got caught in a very sloppy way. He wasn't really um, smart about how he went about it, and he's you know leaking information to awful announcing. And when confronted about it, when ESPN knew that they sort of had him trapped, he denied everything. And I think that sort of helped to put the nail in his coffin, so to speak, um, in terms of working at ESPN. So I think, yes, they're mad about the leaks. I think they're mad about the way he went about leaking and how he leaked. And then I think they were mad that he denied the leaking. And who knows, you know, you know, when you work for a company like ESPN, they can go through your work phone, they can go through your computer, your emails. So, you know, who knows what else they may have found. Right. And if he's been leaking other things, uh, you know, it was really the perfect storm that led to him getting fired. Do we know who he leaked to there? Like, do we know the Like, was it? It was Ben Koo, I believe. Oh, okay. That, that's, that's the main man, I think, there. Ben Koo, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah, I think you're usually not a first-time leaker, right? So if they went in that phone, there's probably they probably found something else, right? And well, and like I said, when they, you know, the way it went down, where he, you know, gave uh, off announcing this information that was only given to Adnan and wasn't discussed anywhere else, they knew they had him, and then he denied it, and I, I really think that was a factor in all this. Do you, where, where do you think awful announcing? Like, what do you think they've 
where do they stand? Like, do they just – do you think that this hurts them in the sense that people are going to be afraid to, to to go to them? Or are they covered enough in that, hey, really it wasn't – it's not like we are implicit in this in any way. We just got information like anyone else does out in the media. And unfortunately, his bosses caught him and they took him down for it. Or do you think that this could hurt a site like Awful Announcing who – Really? No, does. I don't think they're. You think they're? Fine. I don't think they're hurt by this at all. Yeah. No, this isn't. This is. This sort of has nothing to do with them. All pub is good pub, right? I mean, I think they're. You know, they're probably bummed out that they lost an ESPN source. That's pretty much the only <laughs> sort of awful announcing <laughs> angle on this. Uh, this is something I wanted to throw out because I, I don't know if you noticed this the last couple of days, but it sure does seem like Fox has a little bit of buyer's remorse when it comes to the WWE. Um. It sounds like that thing is going to be on Fox for about an hour and then shifted to Fox Sports 1 before we can blink. And it also sounds like they wouldn't have got anywhere near the billion dollars they got if they were doing that deal today. It also sounds like the WWF leveraged Ronda Rousey in getting that deal, and it sounds like she might never see an episode on Fox. I know you're a WWE guy. You've been following this at all? It sure does seem like Fox is a little bummed. I was going to say, I'm a... I'm a very, very bad guess because I have no. I didn't know anything about the Fox buyers' remorse on this, and I didn't know. Oh yeah, yeah, it's circling the. Uh, the uh, plan wrestling. was to push it. I didn't know the plan was to push it from Fox to FS. I thought the deal all along was Raw would be on Fox and SmackDown would be on FS1. Yeah, that's my understanding of the deal as well. I just, you know, it seems like they may shift and everything will turn into Fox. You know, it's, it's yeah, I don't. This is also the wrestling world. I haven't, you know, wrestling internet rumors. You know, this is the Meltzers and the, you know, um, Mike Johnsons of the world. That wouldn't be the first time yeah, they reported I, something fringy. I have not heard anything about this, and I wouldn't feel comfortable commenting because I don't know the source of it. Um, I would say this: uh, no disrespect to Mike Johnson, but I, I'd want to get that information from a, a media person, not a wrestling person. Um, so even over Meltzer, well, I, I mean, I guess if Meltzer had that, I, I would believe it, but that seems more like a media story than a wrestling story. But, um, I will, uh, make some calls when we get off the phone and see what I could find out. Yeah. It's interesting because it does, you know, they just, it started with when, when, when Rhonda announced, when the announcement came that Rhonda could be rapping at mania. And then the, yeah, but I don't listen. There's no way that the, that Fox acquired the rights just for Ronda Rousey. I mean, her leaving, I don't think really. Um, it, it, I think that's overemphasizing the the impact of Ronda Rousey. I mean, what is she? she she's on for one segment, fifteen minutes. I don't think. Uh, I don't think um, her leaving is, is going to cause Fox to you know regret the deal. Right. Do you still listen to? something to wrestle yes do you here here's what i would i would ask you as someone who i know has listened for a long time to the show do you think conrad has gotten him in a situation much like a television show runner where they have their first show it's a breakout hit and then the offers start coming and then they have two shows and then maybe a third and then then maybe they sign on to do a wrestling convention and then before you know it what they originally became big for has suffered because the empire itself has grown so big that they just, there's not enough time to keep up the quality of the original product. Um, 
Well, I mean, I only listen to the podcast, and I don't feel like the podcast has suffered. I, I still think they do a great job with each episode. So I don't know about the other content that they're doing. If it's subpar, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Like I said, I don't do all that other stuff. I just listen to the podcast every week, and it seems fine. I've added the 83 Weeks podcast with Eric Bischoff, which Conrad hosts as well, and I've really enjoyed that one, and I was never... I mean, I always watched it and followed it, but I, I never loved WCW. I think the NWO thing is like the most overrated thing ever. Um, but it, that podcast is very, very good too. So I, just in terms of listening to something to wrestle with, it, it, I haven't noticed the drop-off. I, listen, when you've done it as long as they've done it now, you know, you may ha- not have as much to say. They've covered a lot of topics. and um, uh, But I still think it's it's still informative and entertaining whenever they put out an episode. I, I thought the Sid one was the first good one they had put out in maybe two and a half or three months. And um, and I think that... I mean, I'd have to go through and look at the episodes, but... Conrad is relying uh, so much on notes from others because he doesn't have time that he's not... Right. He's not check... He's not... He's not an effective check of Bruce who we know will just answer the question for the sake of it sometimes regardless of the truth. You know, like if I want to throw out an example, um, you know, Bruce said that on a podcast that Jesse Ventura was the one who suggested that Hulk Hogan burned the U.S. flag during the rock, uh, the the Hulk Hogan and um, Sergeant Slaughter angle before WrestleMania Mm seven. Well, Jesse Ventura left the company right after WrestleMania six. So, you know, that's Bruce saying something. Yeah, I listen. I think I think you have to take every single thing they take with a grain of salt because. They are relying on memories from 20, 25, 30 years ago. Uh, and I hear, I, hear, um, I hear Bruce Pritchard and Eric Bischoff both. I, I've heard them both say, oh, I might not have remembered that. Or, you know, or last, or they've come on, they said last week I said this, but it was this guy. So I think that's to be expected. Um, I'm, just, I'm interested. You didn't like the, uh, the Mick Foley when he won the title? That episode was, came out around Christmas. I thought it was interesting. That was like a bonus um, one. Wasn't it really short? I mean, like when this show has its fastball, it's like a three-hour deep dive into a subject or an event and the time around the event. I'm probably discounting some of the – see, I'm looking now at the feed too. Yeah, I don't. I don't mind if they're shorter. Sometimes Sid, I actually welcome that. Sid and Gorilla were really strong back-to-back episodes. I thought. Um, yeah. And before that, Mean I th- Gene was good. Mean Gene was good. That's a little bit of a different. I mean, all three of them did it that week, so I was kind of listening to them almost as one big one. Mm. The Daniel Pewter and the Hardcore title was kind of a surprise good one back in November. Where I didn't have any. See, expectations that one, I had not that. listened to that one. That, I skipped that one. Yeah, I had no expectations for it, and <laughs> it was loaded with stuff I didn't know and was fascinated by. Um, right, right. You know, I, I just think that, like, like, we've almost probably spent too much time in this because, again, like you said, it is it. It's a wrestling podcast, and they're they're trying to be entertaining. And Bruce's way about it is like Tony's way about it was. Look, it. I don't remember anything. Let's figure something else to do. Right, Tony Schiavone. He's like, yeah, like li- he just he just admitted. Yeah, he's I've like, I don't remember anything. To that one. Yeah, I've th- never listened to the Schiavone one, so I can't. Well, what I've they, never heard it. They tried to basically do have his be the WCW version of Bruce's, and they did the same format. And you know, Conrad would ask questions, and Tony would just be like, I, I don't know, I don't remember, I have no <laughs> idea. So then they're like, right, all right, right, we need to bail on this, and now it's like more of a 
mystery science theater type show. But uh, right, real, right. real quickly to follow up, it was Observer Live and Brian Alvarez, who is um, the, the partner of Meltzer. On Observer Live, mm-hmm. Brian Alvarez said it looks like SmackDown will end up on FS1. He also said WWE mm-hmm. is lucky they signed the deal when they did because they wouldn't get $1 billion contract for the show with its current numbers. I be- that, that latter part sounds probably accurate. Um, I will check with my Fox people and see what I can find out. Yeah, it's interesting. It could be, uh, it could be a good number three for a train of thoughts next week or something. Is, yes, is, definitely. Is Fox wavering a little bit? Um, yep. Tony Romo's AFC Championship game. I know you said this is old, but let's do two minutes on it real quick. His, mm-hmm, his, sure. his, his AFC Championship game was his 500-yard, 5-TD, no-pick game. <laughs> what was his Super Bowl? Because it wasn't quite as good. It wasn't bad. It didn't have as much to work with. It didn't have the drama. But what would you put if you were putting numbers artificially to it, like I just did, kind of for fun? And the, well, if, yeah, I mean, I I I graded the 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 broadcast the day after Monday morning and, and train of thoughts. I gave it a B plus. Obviously, the Chiefs Patriots game was an A plus. Right. Uh, I thought the Super Bowl was a B plus only, I, I, and I don't think it was Tony's fault. I just didn't think they had anything to work with. Um, I know from CBS people I spoke to, you know, they had graphics and bells and whistles that they couldn't even use because, you know, they pile on cam. There was just nothing in the game. Uh, and I think, you know, Tony and, and Jim Nance went to humor for a lot of the game because it was so dull and boring. And, yeah, maybe that's not necessarily what you want on Super Bowl Sunday. But I thought they made the game watchable for that the first three quarters because the teams on the field gave you nothing. Um uh, and I thought, listen, I thought Romo did a good – I, I would have liked to have seen a little more criticism of Jared Goff. I would have liked to have seen a little more criticism of the refs. But um, for what they had to work with, I, I gave the, I gave it a B plus. I thought it was fine and entertaining. You know, as someone who's been a Saints fan for over 30 years, I was in no mood. You know, so, like, right. watching it, them using the humor, like – this game's a joke. I love it. You know what I mean? Like to me, it was the perfect. Right, right. It was the perfect thing. Like, wow, the NFL got a joke. They got what they deserved. Their their main guys are, when, are mocking this. I love it. And you know, the Rams are sending Johnny Hecker out to pawn on every possession. What can Nance and Romo say? You know. Right. Well, they kept saying, like, "Is this the one where he fakes it? Is this like you know?" Because they did. Yeah. They used that as a way to jumpstart themselves in the NFC Championship game, and and that never came. And it was just, yeah, like. I wasn't saying anything was their fault. I was just kind of curious to see where you were at on it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was saying this to someone. It might have been, might have been someone at the house, or might have been even Deitch when we were talking a couple weeks ago. But what made Madden was a what made Madden a star was how he broke down the play for us so quickly on the Telestrator when it ended. It seems like what is making Romo a star is how quickly he can break down the play before it starts uh, and give us, you know, the predictions that he does and make us see, you know, a, a pre-snap, uh, watching the game pre-snap in a way we've never done it before. Do you worry Do you worry at all that it's an edge he has because he's so close to the game playing it and that as he gets further away, that will become more difficult for him? Or do you think he just, his brain and his balls to some degree to be willing to just lay it out there and know that he might not be right. It's just programmed to that degree that that will always be his strength and will be what kind of makes him great and sets him apart from some of the other uh, analysts. 
I mean, yeah, I think as he as the years go by, he will not be able to do that as well as he's doing it now. Am I worried about it? No. Um, I think, you know, maybe he goes more to watching film. Doing, I think he knows so much about the Patriots because they do so many Patriots games, him and Nance. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think he'll lose a little off the fastball, but I think he'll still be fine, and I'm not, I'm not that worried about it. And, you know, it's interesting because I, you mentioned the Madden, and your point was dead on about how Madden would analyze a play afterwards with the t- Telestrator and, you know, Tony Strong suit is something different. But, you know, it's very hard for announcers these days to analyze something on the Telestrator after a play and analyze it because of all these teams using hurry up offenses and no huddle. You used to be able to do that in the Madden days, can't really do that that much now. Right. Sportscaster here with Jimmy Trainout from Sports Illustrated. Been with us a long time. I think 2011 was his first appearance, which was the first year of the show. And uh, let's do a couple quick fun ones. Um, six months from now, is Mike Francesa still going to be at WFAN, or is he going to be focused on no. his app? I think it'll just be on the app. Just be on the app. How many months you That's give him? That's a prediction. Uh, let's say, where are we? February, March, April. Uh, By actually, football. I don't know. Maybe. May, uh, yeah, yeah, I was going to say. Exactly. By exactly. Football, yeah. Maybe. Although I. <laughs> I could see, here's a, this is the type of person Mike is, though. I could if the Yan- let's say the Yankees and Mets are both playing well, maybe they're both in first place or something, or both in the race. I could see him maybe changing his mind in September, but I don't know. For the sake of the podcast, I'll give you a prediction. I say uh, in September he goes app only. Is there any chance that can succeed? <laughs> um. Well, listen. I, I, <laughs> I think there is uh, because if you're going to try, if you're going to charge nine dollars a month, you don't need a ton of subscribers. Um, you know, ten thousand subscribers, nine dollars a month. That's you know, do the math. So I think there's a chance, but um, I think that the only way he has a chance is if he gets off FAN. And isn't the best way I, to subscribe now while the radio show is free? I, I again, going back to Stephen A. and Trump, people are dumb, but I, I don't, I can't grasp the concept on any level why you would pay nine dollars when it's for free on the radio, but people do. Okay, tell me I'm crazy, and maybe I am, but isn't the best way to make this succeed to just he adds all this extra content, right? Oh, my Sunday football show. He's the only one who still cares about that. There's a million Sunday football shows. <laughs> Right. Uh, there's a guy who picks. Why not just do an hour with dog on the stamp app? Isn't that the way to succeed? Isn't that the clear well, way to success? Come on. Absolutely. You, you could talk. You, it, there's a deal to be made there. I just know there is. And I don't think there is because, well, first of all, you know, dog would have to get approval from Sirius. But he just and can't host, I, right? Don't we know that from the Jim Norton negotiation? I mean, I suppose they could have different specific language in their contracts. But I thought generally well, speaking, then the, serious the other issue is if your dog. Host. Yeah, and if your dog, though, you know, Sirius tried to get Mike. Right. I mean, they made offers, and they wanted Mike and Chris to do one day a week. And, you know, Mike wanted more money, didn't like the money that was offered. So I, I've given up on that dream. I don't think it's ever going to happen. <laughs> I, I refuse I, to I, give up. I don't blame you because I really – I only gave up recently. Believe me, I, from the <laughs> day they split up, I always had a thought, and I, I would – it was probably 
when Mike came back to FAN, I realized it's never going to happen again because he had all those months off when he quote unquote retired and he didn't get, you know, a million offers from places and Sirius did make him an offer. And, um, it's just, it's not going to happen anymore. Unfortunately, I'm just hoping Mike's ego drives it. And someone says to Mike, look, you want this app to work. And I know you do. You don't want the embarrassment. You get dog in here for an hour a week or two hours a week. And that's how you boost subs. And then it happens. You know what happens? I think it's harder. It's harder to do than you think, because I mean, well, I guess they could do it on the phone, but that doesn't work. They got to be together. Um, they got to be in person with each other. That's where the chemistry is. But if he does stay in New York, I mean, there's got to be a spot. I mean, if, well, one... if he's if he he does the video, like if he if he leaves Fan, he he, he has a studio in his home. He right, does it all from harder. his house. Right. So I don't think Doug's going to go from New Canaan, Connecticut, to Manhasset, Long Island, and do one hour a week. Not you know, and who knows, not get paid. You know. Well, I know Sam, you're asking a lot. Sammy Hagar would tell me to dream another dream that that dream is over, but I'm holding out. Yeah. I'm holding out a little longer. Let me ask you this: uh, Listen, I hope you're right. I hope your dreams come true. I'm rooting for you. You know what happened to me? And this is a sad story, almost as sad as the Saints story from a couple weeks ago. You know, living in Buffalo, I discovered the Mike and the Mad Dog show on Yes, you know, and fell in, mm-hmm. fell in love yeah. with it because I'm a big sports radio guy and will watch every day on Yes. Well, finally. I had gotten maybe my my second iPhone, and there was an app on there finally that would allow me to stream Mike and the Mad Dog, and so finally after all these years, I'm driving around in my car, you know, midday drive, and I got Mike and the Mad Dog coming through the speakers, and then like three days later <laughs> they broke up. I had it for like four days in oh the car. Oh my god! Yes, wow. yes, four days or so I had it in in the car, and uh, and it blew up. Let me ask you. Uh, uh, we're go- a couple quick ones, and I'll let you go. Um, yep. John Wertheim was on the uh, season premiere of uh, the Sportscaster season nine, and uh, we mm-hmm. talked a lot about SI, the future of SI. And I wouldn't put you on the spot about things that are above your pay grade, like who's going to buy it or anything mm-hmm. like that. But one thing that we talked about that was pretty interesting, and I'm curious to get your take, was I asked Mr. Wertheim, what does SI still do best? What do you think is still the best thing about SI. What is SI's fastball? Why does it still have the value that I perceive it to have? I think the reporting is still as good as any out there. I think the long form, when we dig into a story, we had it this week, a big story about Gabe Kapler and Nick Francona and um, their time there with the Dodgers. And Wertheim, ironically, was the writer of that story. Um, You know, we had a story with the sexual harassment going on with the Dallas Mavericks uh, we had a story about the death of Hideki Arabu over the past year. It's those stories like that, the untold stories, I think we still do best. I still think, listen, we have great writers. Listen, there's no secret we've lost, obviously, writers in terms of um, Peter King and um, Lee Jenkins, our NBA writer, went to the Clippers. Nothing you could do about that. Right. But I think our game coverage, um, lot, we have a lot of up-and-coming young talent, a lot of great young writers uh, so I think our analysis is as good as, you know, we still do great analysis and the long form and the storytelling is still there. What is Howard Stern's fastball in 2019? What makes his show still valuable? I haven't listened. I'm going to admit I haven't listened in about 18 months. I've cherry picked a few things, but I've stopped, stopped being a regular listener. Uh, I mean, listen, I, I tune in every, well, I shouldn't say every day, Monday through Wednesday and, you know, 
I'm guaranteed to laugh at some point in the morning. I still think it's I I always I was never into the porn star, the strippers. The, I my favorite thing was always Howard, Robin, Fred, Gary talking about current events, pop culture, that kind of stuff. And the show being and about the lo- show. Yeah. yeah, I mean they've got all new characters now and new writers. The show's really turned over their staff and. You know, Sal and Richard are older. They don't want to do the antics they used to do. So, you know, they're not on as much. So it is a different show, there's no doubt. Um, But, you know, they still do things that, you know, Howard says things. They do things that I I love J.D. and um, Sal and Richard do. They they do contribute. You know, Richard was on last week talking about how he hasn't washed his jeans in two years. That's the stuff I always got a kick out of. I did see that. Um, And him crying about Howard's. On the phone, he was yes, <laughs> yes, that was that was fantastic. <laughs> I do love Richard. They did a whole, yeah. They had a great bit this week where they mocked Alex Jones and imitated him, and that had me laughing. Uh, you know, anytime Howard talks about his mom, I laugh. You know, Howard just Howard reviewing the Super Bowl because he knows nothing about sports was funny. So, uh, See, like I, I said, it. You know, I think Howard for me became a lot like Mike for you. He just became joyless. Like Howard Stern, right. the individual is just so joyless, and he finally exhausted me at some point. And you know, I was a big Artie guy. That's probably my favorite era. My favorite contract, mm-hmm. you know, is the first serious contract. You know, I just think that they just they took the newfound freedom in places where we you wouldn't expect. It wasn't just swearing and tits. It was you know something different, but using the right. freedom to be creative and. You know, I listen, I still listen to Howard Stern five days a week. It's just usually something on YouTube or, you know, I do cherry pick mm-hmm. some clips on their app. And, you know, I guess he's also speaking to a generation of people in his interviews I don't care about that much anymore. You know, I don't mm-hmm. care about Cardi B or, I don't know, Pete, Pete Davidson. I don't know. I don't even know. Like, the people he has on just don't don't interest me. And that's... You know, a good ninety minutes of the show sometimes. So I don't know. You just became a little joyless and a little. Yeah, bit I mean, listen. Not every guest is going to appeal to every listener. There's, you know, there's right. And that's, that and that, I listen. Yeah, he doesn't have to. I, I'm just trying to explain, kind of like, I guess, why he lost me. And everything became so overtly fake. I know he says like, "Oh, they're phony phone calls." Of course, they're not real. But like, it's like wrestling. You don't want them to flaunt in your face how phony everything is. You know, and I feel like they just became so lazy and so overtly obvious in the fact that everything on the show is a work you know right down to let's bust like you know they're sitting in the back let's bust gary's balls about this you know like all right yeah let's do that for an hour well do we really care about that no but let's just bust his balls about it anyway you know and that might have happened in the 90s but there was a certain i don't know it just didn't feel as in my face that everything everything was a work and that's how i guess the show feels to me in 2019 Right, right. So, all right. Yeah, I guess I'm just I'm not bothered that it's a work. So, for me, it's fine. Jimmy Trainer uh, writes Trainer's thoughts daily, and you can find that on SI.com, and you can find him on Twitter. He's at Jimmy Trainer there, right? No underscore, or is there, or is there an underscore? No underscore. Yeah, no I'm underscore. one of the lucky people without an underscore. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so just at <laughs> Jimmy Trainer there, and um, his podcast, which he seamlessly took over from Richard Deutsch. I told Richard, you know, it doesn't say, you know, it doesn't say much for you. You were, you, you were very replaceable. I told him, you know what I mean? Like, Jimmy just oh, came you in. Not have said that to him. J- Jimmy just came in and just wiped you right off the map. So, 
I really hope you didn't say that to him. No, I'm just busting balls. I'm just kidding. Okay, because he'll never do your podcast again <laughs> if you said that to him. No, we but we but we uh we 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 give it and take it back like that. But no, I was, yeah. I was trying to prop you up here, Jimmy. That's all. I was trying to. Prop no, you. no, no. I appreciate it, but I'm I'm looking out for you. I don't want Richard may hold the grudge, so I don't want you know. I don't want you losing a guest. Right, right. But no, the, the sports media podcast, the SI Sports Media podcast comes out weekly and he's done some really great stuff with the office recently if you're an office fan you can go back and check that out and um yeah it's steve carell on two weeks ago so if anyone likes the office that's the one to listen to yeah some really great stuff with that and sports media roundtables um always poking fun of mike uh mike francesa with andrew marchand if you like that and um any, what about we're, we're just reporting we're just, we just report what goes on we don't poke fun <laughs> anything else you want to promote no, that's it. I appreciate the plugs. Yeah, like just you know, column every day, and the podcast comes out every Wednesday. Uh, and you know, that's uh, that's those are the two biggies right there. So you covered it. I appreciate it. All right, very, 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 very last thing you can get out of here on this. What yep. what is going to be the biggest sports media story of twenty nineteen? Hmm. Let's see. It's a good question. Biggest sports media story of twenty nineteen. Um, hmm. I'll tell you, you know, when you mentioned earlier, the first thing you started with about what topics would I discuss if I was hosting a podcast today, I think one of the things to keep an eye on are the, uh, the NBA ratings are down. And I do think a lot of it has to do with LeBron being out West, but I'll be very curious to see the NBA playoff ratings and NBA finals ratings. Um, there's just something about LeBron and Cleveland that seemed intriguing. I'm not sure you know, what team comes out of the East to lose to the Warriors. And, you know, there was a lot of fatigue with, in, with the Super Bowl with the Patriots. And I have a funny feeling you're going to have some very low NBA Finals ratings numbers because I think people are going to get tired of watching the Warriors just, you know, steamroll again and not give us any drama. So I think the NBA ratings uh, will be a big story over the summer. And um, maybe that's not a real juicy one, but... Um, you know, and I think, listen, this is sort of a little out of my range. I'm trying to be more on top of this, but, you know, this, this streaming and takeover here, you know, ESPN Plus now has more than 2 million subscribers. I don't know where the line is here. I mean, sports fans just keep paying, paying, paying. It's very interesting to see what, what they'll pay for and what they won't. Uh, obviously, everyone's going to get in on the, is getting in on the streaming interesting to see how that affects sports fans and how they watch things. The NBA really needs the Celtics to figure it out, right? Because if they get Toronto, you don't really get a rating from that market. And if you get the Timberwolves, right. that seems like a disaster. So I don't know. I don't know basketball. Yeah, the Celtics well, would, would be the best. The Celtics by far would be the best option. I know you know a lot of people love Giannis and the Bucks. The Bucks would bring a terrible rating to the NBA Finals. Oh, the Bucks. That's what I meant to say. I said the Timberwolves, didn't I? See, that's eminent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I meant to say the Bucks. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, Fear the deer. Like you said, the Raptors. And, yeah, it would be. the, the Believe me, ESPN, ABC, they're, they're praying for Boston. But, again, if it's four games or five games, it doesn't matter really who's there. Right. Interesting. Jimmy, I told you that'd be the last thing, so I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for doing this, and we'll talk again soon. I appreciate it. Have a good one. Thanks.
too tall, could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering out. She was a black haired beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sudden way up high. I want to thank Jimmy Trainer from Sports Illustrated for being on the podcast today. We're going to get to John Delapina in a second, but first, the bizarre, bizarre, bizarre saga of the Soprano Sessions and an interview uh, that I'm attempting to book with Matt Zoller Seitz. All right, here's the story. So I told you guys way back that I really wanted to do something for the book club uh, on the new Sepinwall Sites book about the Sopranos called Soprano Sessions. Now, we had featured uh, the book that they had done together called TV the Book, and I did an interview with Sepinwall. It's the second time or third time he came on the show, and he's really difficult to book, really hard. Uh, but we got him on, and we did that thing for the book, and it was cool. And then he put out a Breaking Bad book, and I wanted to do the same, and I couldn't track him down. And it got to the point where I couldn't get him to re- even return an email. And I'm like, I want to do him a favor, and he can't even respond and say, no, thank you. So I just kind of moved on. And when Soprano Sessions came out, I figured I'm not going to go through that again, but I want to read this book. So I kind of just bought it as a fan, and I read it and liked it so much I wanted to do something. So I said, well, what if I reach out to the other author? Uh, maybe he is easier to get. So I reached out uh, to Matt on Twitter, and he got back to me real quick and DM'd me and asked for more information, and I gave him more information, and then I followed up with him, and I said, hey, you know, are we going to do this? And he wrote back to me again pretty quickly and said, sure, this is word for word, sure, can we schedule it for Friday or Monday morning Eastern time? So I wrote back and said, yes, awesome. Monday will be great. Just let me know what time works Monday works best for you, and I'll make it happen, Steve. Never heard back from him all that week. Uh, Tried him again on Sunday. Uh, Said, hey, hope you're having a good weekend. Are we still on for tomorrow? Do you have a time in mind? What's the best way to reach you? Didn't hear back. Uh, And now I've emailed him again saying, is this going to happen or not? I I don't know. I, I promoted it on Twitter, and he liked the tweet. So I don't know what is going on with him or the Soprano Sessions and if we're ever going to talk about it again on this podcast or not. But, geez, TV critics, man, a weird breed. I just don't even know how to explain it. Like, I just they're just the hardest, hardest guests to book. But, mm. all right, let's do this Delapina thing because I'm pumped about it. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back and talk to the senior VP of communications at the nhl and if you're not that interested in the rangers part the first 15 minutes or so of the interview is more about his role at the nhl kind of what he does and and what he sees for the future of the league and we talk about the young players we talk about the emergence of hockey in the united states so really fun start to it even if you're not into the rangers stuff and then like i said we have a bunch to do um in terms of announcing new partnerships and uh plugging podcasts and uh, talking about a potential new era of the sportscaster. So let's take a break and we'll be back with uh, John Delapina.
All right, our next guest is from Queens, New York, and he worked for many years as a sports writer for the New York Daily News before starting a job at the National Hockey League as a group VP of communications. He's making his first appearance on the Sportscasters today. A warm, warm Sportscasters welcome to John Delapina. What's going on, John? How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Are you in the league offices in New York City as we speak? I am physically in the league offices. And what is the buzz today in the league offices? What's the what's the what's Friday? The buzz? You know, it's always what it's always the next event, right? So we have Stadium Series coming up, and that's uh, that's what we're gearing up for. Stadium Series. I was at the first Winter Classic back in I guess oh. two thousand eight in Buffalo. And, History. Uh, History. Yes. It was it was one of those things where it was really fun in the beginning, and like during the sh- by the time Sidney Crosby shoot took his shot, I was like, <laughs> "All right, just you know whatever happened, like let's just let's do this." You know, just you just yeah. got so but cold. But you had to stay to the end, right? Oh, of course, yeah. Oh, of end. course, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You had to stay till the yeah, end. You know. And the second that he jumped over the boards, I knew it was over. I think I turned to my wife and right. said, "Like this kid doesn't miss these when these moments are on Sidney Crosby's stick. Yeah. He doesn't." You know he doesn't. Now miss Sydney them. is special. You know, as I watched into my horror in the uh, in the Olympics. So you know. Yes, we all did. <laughs> what all, are you going to so, do? Yeah, we all watched that as Americans. Yes. Miller had yes. such a such a great tournament, and he just kind of misjudged that one. I think yep. he'd still like to have that yep. one back. You know, but um, yeah, well, Crosby got to move in Sydney. a little bit. He's he's built for the moment. Yeah, you you. I mean, you were. I mean, we all thought. I think tying it the way we did so late that yep. you know you're going to come yep. out in overtime, but. Uh, let me ask you this, since we're talking about Sydney, and you, you're saying, you know, events, and the All-Star game just passed. I'll ask you one quick kind of league-ish question, and then we'll move on to the 94 sure, Rangers. Sure. Uh, young players, right? Because I talk to – anytime we, we do a – it seems like we do a, a hockey spot in the show now, we, we're talking about someone who's not 22. You know, like it just it's, – it's, right. we're talking about McDavid, yep. or we're talking about Eichel, or Darlene, you know, the, the two big guys in Buffalo, or – Patrick Lane mm-hmm. or Austin Matthews or, you know, who, whomever. I mean, we could probably name, you know, uh, I was joking with someone about, like, can we, are, we, are we still allowed to say generational players? Because it feels like we've had, you know, 15 of them come into the league in the last right. five years. Uh, from a league perspective, as someone who's a VP of communications for the league, someone who is part of promoting the game, I mean, what about the young players ex- excites you most? And, and what challenges does maybe – so many of the great players in the league being so young create, if any. Like, is yeah, there... it's a good question. Um, yeah, I, I think what excites me is probably what a lot of us have, had been hoping for for years, which is that the game would open up a bit and get more creative. Uh, and let's face it, you know, the young players, the last thing they're thinking about is defense. You know, they are not thinking about the left wing lock or a neutral zone trap or, you know, I got to be in the right position defensively. Uh, all that joy killing stuff comes to them later in their careers. Right. You know, you, uh, you know, just go back to the, the under 23 team, Team North America. You know, it was basically open the doors, let them let these horses run. And it was fun. And I know that gives general managers and coaches gray hairs. And, and I understand why they want to clamp down on things. But that's what I think it is. And. And, you know, in my 10 years at the league, after 25 years of covering the league as a sports writer, I, the maturity of these guys has has evolved and progressed so much. It used to be an 18 year that came in the league was, besides being a rarity, 
he was wide-eyed, couldn't complete a sentence. Uh, you know, just if you put a microphone or a notebook in front of him, he would freeze. And, you know, we take the top prospects out to dinner at the final every year. And I've just noticed the progression from year to year. And, you know, it, you talk to these kids and they're just mature. They, they, they're mature. They're comfortable media wise uh, from a league perspective. When we try to do things like all access shows, they are happy to wear microphones. They get it. Uh, so, you know, look, there's Mark Messier. I covered him. He was the greatest leader in any sport I ever covered. And having a guy with that kind of experience in the locker room to put things in perspective was invaluable. And so you need older players, but boy, there's something to be said for the exuberance and naivete of youth. And so I, I think we're benefiting from it, you know, on balance as a league. Two quick follow-ups on that. One is, with so many of the, I mean, a lot of these guys we mentioned, they're American players, and we got to tip our cap, I think, to the development program in Ann Arbor and to yep. and to the USHL and the way these guys develop in, in the USHL and college. I mean, my brother played for Sioux Falls and Waterloo in the USHL before he went on to Yale, mm-hmm. and I just remember him saying to me like his first month there that the thing that surprised him the most was it's like playing pro. He feels like he's playing pro hockey. Like his job went from being right. a high school student and a high school player in just a few short months to being a pro hockey player in a way, and that they were training him for all those things right away, like the second mm-hmm. he joined the USHL. So I, I was just curious if you would agree that a lot of what you're seeing in terms of the microphone and their willingness probably starts with the USHL and the development program and the way these this pro, these programs aren't just on ice preparing our players but also off ice. As well, do you have an opinion? Yeah, on that? I, I, I think that's definitely part of it. But, but let's not leave out college hockey because I think you know, oh, I'm of course, a big believer in that. Same. Um, and 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 I just think you know, I see it with my own son who graduated from Vanderbilt uh, two years ago and played club hockey there. I, you know, I, I don't want to sound like an old dinosaur, but I, I really think kids today, because of media and what they're exposed to, and maybe the way their parents treat them, and maybe you know have treat them more like adults earlier, even while they're coddling them. You know, uh, I, I just think they're in general, kids are, kids are more mature today, uh, good or bad. You know, I, I guess you could argue that there's some bad things about lost youth, but uh, you know, especially the kids who are, you're right, exposed to the top levels of hockey. It's just the media are all around them. And, uh, yeah, you better, you better learn how to deal with it or else, you know, there's going to be problems. Uh, last thing on this, and, and then I want to talk about the 94 plus and the yeah. 94 Rangers. Interesting, we've talked about all these young guys, right? But we're also seeing the revenge of the vets, right? Like, look at the season that yep. Stamkos is having. The season that Patrick Kane, and it's crazy to call him a vet, but he's 30 years old, right? He's been in the league a long time. Right. And and Sidney Crosby, the season he had last year, and the way he, the way he's played, it seems like the more we talk about these young guys – the upper 1% of the over 25 guys are saying, hey, don't forget us. We're still studs in this league. And, you know, I don't know if you have an opinion on that, but like Patrick Kane, I mean, he might be having his best season in the NHL. Yeah, and, and look, it's because these guys, as you said, they are the upper 1%. They are the ones touched by God. And they also figured it out. So somebody like Sidney Crosby, who, you know, obviously so much God-given ability, but you know, a work ethic and an ability to adapt that seconds to none, you know, it's legendary and everybody knows how he kind of picks one thing itch off season that he thinks he can get better at. So 
you know, he goes from being okay at faceoffs to being a great faceoff guy. He goes from, you know, a great a great playmaker to being a great finisher. It, 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 and and those are the kind of things. I mean, Yarmir Yager always used to tell me about that. Like if if I'm not if I'm not progressing and I'm not changing and I'm not giving all my opponents something new to think about every year, then you know the game's going to catch up to me and I'm I'm going to be out. And and so I think those guys. You know, I, people will look at Steven Stamkos and say, oh, yeah, he scored so many goals in that one spot. Nah, that, that's not what it's about. But it's also about the fact that he practices that all the time. Uh, you know, and I, I, I think you're seeing it, in, you know, in your neck of the woods with a guy like Jack Eichel. I, you know, he's just – you can see from year to year how he's just adding different dimensions to his game. And so, you know, at 30, 31, 32, I fully expect Jack Eichel will still be a superstar in the NHL. Yeah, and the maturation projects with Jack Eichel has been really fun to watch. My brother's last college game yep. actually was yep. was an NCAA tournament game against Jack Eichel and BU that BU won 3-2 in overtime. But I remember watching him that day with the thought that, wow, this guy could be a Buffalo Sabre, you know, thinking that in the stands and, and watching his game. And then I would, just took my daughter to her first game last week. Uh, she's two and a half, totally in love with the game, right. already can skate. And she went to her first Sabres game and, you know, where I was watching Jack again and, and kind of just thinking about the two the two days uh, you know, my brother's last college hockey game, my yep. daughter's first college game or uh, first NHL game and Jack Eichel being a part of them in some some way in both and the difference in right. the player and what a, what a star he is. And I mean, man, I, my favorite thing about Jack Eichel is the way he has an ability to change speeds in the neutral zone with almost like he'll lull the defensemen who are worrying about their gaps and his speed. To right. slow down just right. enough, and then bam, that's when he changes speeds. He does it as good as anyone right. um, and creates a lot of space for himself that way. But um, yep. listen, I called you because I really uh, the Rangers, the 1994 Rangers, had a celebration, yep. I think, last week at MSG. Uh, 25, mm-hmm. 25 years since they won the Stanley Cup. And the spring of 94 was a, a magical time, I'm sure, in New York City. I was in Buffalo, but enjoying every minute. And, and of course, not only the Rangers, but... The Knicks went to the finals at Game 7 of the finals that year. Mm-hmm. And there's the wonderful 30 for 30 documentary, which I think does a good job of yep. just explaining how much was going on in June of 1994. Oh, yeah. And uh, you were covering this uh, for the Daily News, correct? Yes, correct. Yeah, covering for the Daily News. Uh, so I thought mm-hmm. we could uh, go back uh, in memory lane a little bit. And let's start sure. with the Rangers. And why don't you for a second just try to put into perspective um, – for maybe anyone who's maybe if I have younger listeners or anyone mm-hmm. who doesn't remember, try to put into perspective just how much pressure there was on the 1994 Rangers and how big 1940 was and how much that loomed over the organization and how important that spring was. Yep. So, I mean, the pressure was from two different, it, it was present tense pressure and, and 54 years of pressure. And, you know, I, you could, I mean, my age is not that big of a secret, but you know, I grew up in, in the, in the early seventies, late sixties. So I remember 1972 when the Rangers might've had the best team in the league and John Rattel breaks his ankle. And so they don't beat the Bruins. They don't win the Stanley cup that year. And then in 1979, they beat the Islanders in the semifinals. And, you know, my whole neighborhood in, in Queens was going bananas. That, you know, finally we're going to win. Right. Uh, no, because Alf Nielsen got hurt on a clean check by Dennis Potvin late in the season, and so they were really one guy short. 
Although if you look at that final against the Canadians, the Rangers really never touched the puck for four games. So it was kind of <laughs> amazing that, that they came, <laughs> that series even lasted five games. But anyway, so, so that happened. And then Messier comes, 91-92. They're the best team in the league. Messier is the MVP. Leach gets hurt late in the season the next year. Or, you know, freaky things happen in the playoffs in 92, but then Leach gets hurt the next year, and everything falls apart. And they, so, didn't, they didn't even make the playoffs yeah, in between, right? The year in between. They didn't even make the playoffs. Right. Roger Nielsen gets fired. Mike Keenan comes in at the end of the, the end of the season, uh, when the season ends. And and so you know when you're a Ranger fan, you know if you're a right thinking individual, you don't think there's really a curse. But but it does get to be what is going on here and a self fulfilling prophecy in a way. I remember writing stories about you know, the pressure and how it would continue to build and how the first thing somebody would would learn when they became a ranger was well we haven't won since 1940 and you know add in the islanders winning four times in between uh the devils rising on the on the west bank of the hudson and it just became excruciating uh you know by the end of the 94 season neil smith had given in to mike keenan's harping on him for the entire season and basically traded the future away so right tony amante win right tony amante a big name you know and so yeah, and so they had to win. And, you know, as it's going along and they wind up matched up against the Devils and what I can I consider to be the best seven game series that was ever played, uh best you know, best sporting event I ever personally witnessed and I'm, I've been to five Olympics and every giant Super Bowl. But like the Devils are gonna win the Stanley Cup before the Rangers? I I, I mean, if you're a Ranger fan, it's just inconceivable. Like what could what more could go wrong? Um, so yes, the pressure was by the final, the pressure was enormous. And, you know, by game six of the semifinals, the the famous game, it was, it was excruciating. Let me ask you about a couple of quick things in the regular season. There is a game, I want to say in March where the Rangers went to the Nassau Coliseum and they hadn't won there for whatever reason in like four or five seasons. And Mm -hmm. they finally got a win in kind of a like a really great regular season game. And I remember I actually remember telling my brother about this game when the the, the Sabres had a similar thing in uh oh five, oh six with Ottawa where they just couldn't beat Ottawa. Ottawa had beat them here like ten to four. And the Sabres got a big right. win against them late in the year. And I remember telling my brother like the Rangers did this with the Islanders. It was huge for them. You remember the game I'm talking about? I'm remembering this right where they kind of got a huge win against yep. the Islanders late in Nassau and that kind of set them Rolling yeah, no, a I bit. do remember it. Now, 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 full disclosure, that year I'm on the Devils beat right, Devils, the yeah. whole season, right? Um, and then, you know, obviously cover the whole, all the way through, including that epic series against Buffalo. And then the final, basically the Daily News had everybody all hands on deck. So, so I'm not with the Rangers for that game, but, you know, I grew up a Ranger fan. I, I'm paying attention to the Rangers, and I'm covering the Devils, who are clearly the second best team in the league, and the only thing separating them is that they're 0-6 against the Rangers. So, yeah, I, I remember that game. And the funny thing is, you know, reminiscing with, with the guys on Friday and and talking to them over the years, you're right. Like That was a big psychological hurdle for the Rangers. And it, and it seems silly now because they were so much better than the Islanders in 93-94. In they, they were two teams on completely different planes. But they couldn't win in Nassau Coliseum. I, there was something about it. 
And, you know, to this day, there are guys there who talk about how game three of that playoff series was a huge game because they won in the Coliseum, even though they won like six to nothing, six to nothing in the first two games of that series. So, yeah, that was a psychological hurdle winning in winning in Nassau. So they beat the Islanders. They beat the Capitals in the first two rounds. Right. I, I, mean, I think it was 4-0, 4-1. And then they, get, right. then they face the Devils. I'll tell you my Dave Hannon right. story because we talked about this on the uh, – Yep. Okay, so the Devils and the Sabres are playing in the first round of the playoffs. It's a 3-6, I believe. Was it the 3-6 or the 2-6? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 3-6. And uh, well, Or was it – Right, because the Devils had the second-best record, but they were – Not the division the champion. Division, so I right. Yeah, right, right. Right, so, so it's a 3-6, and um, the, the Sabres are still in the odd. they got about two seasons left in the odd. And – this is like this. This Dave Hannon game kind of haunts me in a way because it's like the one significant Sabers playoff OT game I haven't been to in my lifetime. I was at May Day, uh, you know. But I, so, but so, me and my dad are watching this game, and my dad has this stereo he's really proud of, right? And mm-hmm. um, he's not a big music guy though. He's got like six songs he likes, like "Running with the Devil" and like another thing coming by <laughs> uh, Judas Priest. Like that, that's his music. That's his his catalog, right? So. Anytime, That's like Jack Eichel's catalog. Right. Oh, Jack's a great big music fan. We were at, we were at Pearl Jam together in Boston this summer. Yeah, we were at Pearl Jam in Boston. There you go. So anyway, so my dad, any chance he had to crank this stereo, he would do it. But he didn't love music, right. so his, his crutch was the goal horn. When he would watch a Sabres okay. game and they'd score, he'd crank his stereo. He's so proud of this stereo, right? Okay. And it pissed my mom right. off. Yeah, I think my, my, bro- my brother was born in 91. He's a 91 birth year, so he was mm-hmm. two at the time, three at the time. So it pissed her off. So anyway, so we're watching this game, and I'm doing everything in my life to stay awake, you know, like rubbing my right. eyes. We're, the whole family, we're like walking around. I don't know. Gets to the fourth overtime, and I must have fell asleep because the next thing I remember is the stereo at 65 out of 65 just blaring the goal horn and uh, Rick Jenneret having a coronary about Jimmy Hoffa and uh, – I was like, holy shit, we won. <laughs> like, my dad was the only one still awake uh, until the puck went in, and then everyone was awake because he cranked his stereo. So that's my Dave Hannon story. Well, but, but let uh, me ask you a question. Did, yeah. your dad crank the, did your dad crank the stereo for the goal horns on the three awarded goals that were later disallowed? Oh, my God. Can you believe that? Yes. Because in that yep. game, the puck, mm-hmm. Terry Gregson, one of the great referees of all time, kept pointing that there were goals, yep. and they kept getting overruled. So. That yes, was, uh, that was one of the greatest games I ever covered. It was it was an amazing uh, look. Marty Brodeur and Dominic Hasek. What what more do you need to say? But it, it was the the at, the lock the post game locker room for the Devils was like a mash unit. I'm bodies laying all over the place. Uh, probably not a surprise to anybody who has been in the yard that the shower backed up, and so there was basically an inch of water on the floor. And guys are just, like, can barely breathe, all except for Bobby Holy, who's just bouncing around the locker room, just basically saying, I, I was getting stronger every period. I wish we'd play all night. So it's amazing the Devils were able to come back a couple nights later and win Game 7 because that was the most one of the most devastating losses I ever watched the team suffer. That, that, two season, that two-year run for the Sabres <laughs> with uh, Mogilny and LaFontaine, Really strange because they have, they finally win a first, uh, win a playoff series basically for the first time in my lifetime. I was born in 1980, right? Uh, against the Bruins on the famous May Day goal, then lose to the eventual right. champion Canadians, four games, four three, three overtime. Remember the Canadians won ten overtime games yep. in that playoffs in a row. Yep. Patrick John, John Leclerc, right? And Mogilny, that was his 76 yep. goal year. He broke his leg in that series, 
So you wonder what if, if in the, all those one game, one goal games, what if we could have Mogilny? And then the next year, you know, they lose to the second best team in the East in, a, in just a, an epic battle. Uh, but so we get right. we get to Rangers Devils and uh, right. the NHL put out a box set and it's got all seven games of that and all seven games right. of Rangers Canucks and it's glorious and we mm-hmm. all remember Stefan Matteau in Game Seven and we'll talk about that but there was two other double overtime games before that in this series uh, Game One and the other one that yep. Matteau won was that Game Three or. Four? Must have been three. I believe it was three. Must have been three because the Devils won four and five. So we had one and three, our double overtime games as well. What do you remember about either of the overtime winners from that series that don't get talked about as much in game one and three? You remember anything interesting about either of those? I think what I just remember mostly about about game one was not so much the winner, but, but the notion that the Devils really cleared a gigantic, a psychological hurdle because they lost all six games to the Rangers in the regular season. Uh, I was with them on the road at the trade deadline when the Rangers traded a quarter of their team away. And that rattled a lot of devils. Like a lot of devils looked around and said, what are, if they're doing this and why aren't we doing anything? Uh, you know, they're, they've beaten us every time this year. They're the best team in the league and they're still improving. So I, I think the Devils went into that series wondering if, if they just weren't able to beat the Rangers. And it all changed in game one. And then the Rangers knew they were in a series. Uh, Messier pancakes Stevens behind the net on the first shift of game two. And suddenly the Rangers were in the series. And uh, it, was, it was epic. It was just hammer and tongs back and forth. Mike Keenan going off the deep end and benching everybody in game four in the Meadowlands. It was just it was, right. it was amazing. It was crazy. Yeah, he took he took Richter out. He, Leach was benched. Uh, you know, Leach, yeah. Brian Leach just suddenly isn't playing. Uh, so game six, you're on the Devils side. What do you remember most about the yep. Devils' reaction to Messier's guarantee? Like, what was the de- it, what were the Devils saying it, about it? Well, so let's go back to what okay. actually happened. Right. And and Stan Fischler used to call the people who covered the Rangers the Seventh Avenue Adventists. <laughs> uh, meaning that like we 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 turned we turned Messier into a god and all this. Well, Messier was a god. I've covered every sport as a beat, and he's the best captain I've ever seen. But the guarantee really wasn't a guarantee. It was just Mark being ultimate. You know, completely confident. Somebody asked him a question: What are you going to do? You just lost games four and five. You know, you and he said we're going to do what we did all year. We're going to go in there. We're going to win a game, and we'll bring it back to the Garden for Game Seven. And people have to put it in its proper context because back then, other than Joe Namath, nobody in sports did that. Like, it, it just wasn't done. So, you know, Pat, poor Patrick Ewing wound up doing it every single year after that, and it never actually came through. And now a lot of people do it all the time. But when he did that, you know, the writers kind of got together. And I remember John Giannone calling me from the Rangers practice and saying, we think Mark just guaranteed game six. You know, it was, it was, it was so weird. So the papers kind of took it to another level, right? Including the infamous, I consider infamous post back page, which was grammatically and factually incorrect. Like many things about the New York post, uh, where it says, we'll win we'll tonight. Win tonight. Right. Yep. Well, obviously he didn't say that because he said it on the day before the game. <laughs> right. So we'll win tonight. I don't know where they play in checkers. Did they have a game? <laughs> guy rank? I don't know. Anyway, but so, so, you know, I went in the next day and you know, they were kind of, they were, 
they weren't rattled about it. They thought they were completely in the driver's seat. You know, they were the younger team. You know, the Rangers were a little banged up. Uh, they they were like, yeah, okay, well, you know, he's trying something, but you know, who who cares? And then the puck is dropped, and the Devils are blowing the Rangers out onto the New Jersey Turnpike. Right, I mean, it was red. the most lopsided, most lopsided two nothing game you've ever seen. Mike Rick single-handedly kept them in the game and so you know to think the devils are rattled by that i mean i mean watch game six because it wasn't like one team and the other team was watching for basically 36 37 minutes until the devils made a bad line change i was kovalev scored kovalev. and everything flipped that kovalev yeah. goal in your mind just as big as 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 any goal that playoff i mean just at it's late in the second and then you get the mindset coming out in the third you're not down two, right it's a one play game then Right. Right. No, it's colossal. And yeah. and we all joke. I was joking with Frank Brown about it the other day. To me, one of the great uh, lost pieces of hockey history is the stories, the running stories that we all had written at the end of the second period. Because I know what mine said. It was basically like not only did the Islanders win four Stanley Cups, but now the Mickey Mouse franchise is going to go to the Stanley Cup final before the Rangers again. And they're going to win. And it was it, it was basically like the, Again, they, the ultimate choking franchise can't come through. And then it all flipped. And it, it, it was amazing how fast it flipped. But then it flipped, and then two days later, they, the Devils got off the mat and played an epic Game 7 that you know was the best game I've ever seen. Just in case we don't get back to Kovalev, and I know you were on the Devils' side most of the year, but do you remember right. this story floating around? Because a, a big narrative of the 94 Rangers is Mike Keenan's decision to make it about the team versus him, right? And the way he would run practices, the things he would do, the right. mind games he would play. And we just talked about one from, uh, from the series where he, he benches Leach uh, in, the middle of, uh, in the middle of the playoffs. Do you remember right. a story right. about Kovalev in the third period supposedly staying out a little bit too long on a shift so Keenan made him play the rest of the game? It was like about eight minutes left in the game or something. And Keenan's um, like, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. In fact, at the press conference, when the guys all got together at the garden before the 25th anniversary, uh, Kovalev slipped into the press seating and raised his hand while, while Mike and Neil were up on the dais and said, uh, Mike, I have a question. Why would you leave somebody out there for seven minutes? <laughs> wow. And they all had a good laugh about it. Yeah. And so, you know, and Mike, you know, went into his philosophy speak and, you know, Alex, I was trying to teach a young player that team comes before but the funny <laughs> thing about that story was at the time alex thought he was being rewarded you know because right. because if anybody knew alex kovalev he could play a 60 minute game and he like why would you ever change lines i just leave me out there so he kept coming back to the bench and no stay out there he, he so he thought well, i must be doing something good i always <laughs> think about how boyish she was that season like carrying around, you know like uh, carrying around a troll doll in the celebration in the locker room and he just seemed like such a Kid, yeah. like we were just talking about kids in the league. He felt he felt really, really young that season. Um, let me ask you about Game yeah. Seven because it's yeah. one of the great games. Of course, uh, the Rangers get yeah. a goal and then they're kind of in hang on mode and they hung on and hung on and hung on, literally into the last minute of the game. Uh, which I don't know. Maybe some people forget that that they were after all the 1940 talk. Right, and after everything that went wrong, and Messi's right. guarantee, and being down to nothing in Game Six, they were fifty-three seconds away from the cup. And was it Zel- Zelpukin? Uh, Zelpukin that scored, or yeah, 
Yeah. Um, seven point seven seconds away. Seven. Yes. Fifty three was in my head. Um, wow. Right. What? What? What's the? What's the mood? What's the? Tell me about the press 7. box. 7. That, yeah. Tell me about the press box at or wherever you were. What? What was the? Well, so first thing is you said the Rangers got a goal. The Rangers got one of the great goals in the history of the Rangers. The, the greatest American-born player of all time, Brian Leach. And if you want to argue with me on this, I'm going to have to come up there and fight you on it. Well, it's either him or he Kane comes now, down right? the point. It's a two-man race. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, let's let's give Patrick a little more time. But okay. anyway. Fair enough. Uh, and, and maybe it's going to be Austin Matthews someday. And, you know, all right, God, cool. thank God we will now have – we will or Jack Eichel, and we will now have contenders for this throne. I, yes. Thank God American hockey's come to that point. But anyway – you know, comes down from the point, spinorama at the left post, jams one on Brodeur. And and I always said as a New Yorker, you know, Matteau Matteau is great and epic, but, you know, by all rights, the greatest Ranger of all time should have scored the only goal in that game. But Brian Leach is always destined to be the Walt Frazier to Mark Messier's Willis Reed. So, you know, just like Walt Frazier scored 30. 36 points and you know had 19 rebounds and, you know 15 assists in game seven against the lakers but willis reed hit two jump shots brian leach scored that unbelievable goal that is almost lost to history because because everybody lost their mind with seven seconds left and valerie zelabuki and their rebound in right but you know the, the 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 building it was it was it was shock and horror i it was you know, everything we've talked about till now about curses and they're never going to win. You, you couldn't make it up that, that they were that close. And, and, you know, this guy who, look, I, I covered him his whole career is a, is a fine player, but, you know, scores with 7.7 seconds left. You, you, you couldn't rip it out of people's hearts in, in a worse way. And then it was, you know, two overtime periods of just horror, uh, but, but thrills, uh, just amazing moments. I, you know, I remember the rebound sitting in the crease and Sam Rosen yelling, you know, where's the puck? And, right, you know, Bernie Nichols. Like, yeah, know, Bernie either, Nichols. Either Bernie Nichols, mm-hmm. you know, was, was going to score. And, yeah, I, the, the, the fun part, I would say, is, you know, when you're working, you do get to detach yourself from how you grew up as a Ranger fan and all that. With, you know, Brad Park was, was my guy. And so John Giannone, who was doing the Ranger game stories, I was doing Devil's game stories, we would just call each other in the press box, 10 feet away from each other every 15 minutes and say, how great is this? How great is this? Because it was so good that while you were watching it, you could appreciate how good it was. And it was, it was just, it was just deafening. It was, it was like a, a Springsteen concert on ice is really what it was. It was just amazing. And Matteau gets the goal, a great call, one more hill to climb and it's Mount Vancouver. Yep. Uh, and I was watching something and, he, um, you're talking about the call and how FAN was playing it. And and just because we're here, I want to ask you real quickly. What do you remember about FAN's role in the city that summer? Because obviously Mike and the Mad Dogs started in 89. So this is about five years into their run. Right. They get both teams making epic runs that spring. What, If anything, do you remember anything about kind of Mike and the Mad Dog and FAN and sports radio's kind of role in this in the city as kind of almost like a first time, um, certainly in the Mike and the Mad Dog era, uh, where um, the New York teams are are at this level. Well, the the ninety one Bills and Giants, I guess, would be another example too. But right, uh, I think that was I think that was their first big one. But yeah, yeah no, th- that that spring was unbelievable. And and you know, personally for me, it was kind of funny on game days at the Garden. You know, I knew the Zamboni guys, and so I 
Frank Brown, who was a goalie, and I would just we'd bring our gear, and after the morning skate, we'd just go out and we'd 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 go on the garden ice for an hour and and play. And this would do. <laughs> They'd have us on as as guests. They would do their show from the garden during the day, like in between the morning skate and uh, and the game that night. So they'd be in the press area where you know later how we would be calling the game in the in the radio booth. And so Frank and I would you know get our gear off and then we'd go up and spend. 20 minutes on the air with them. So no, they, yeah, I mean, it, Mike and Chris, that was, that was an amazing year for the two of them. I, you know, I think it was the year that they both really got into hockey, uh, which I think both would admit was not their favorite sport, but uh, I, I think they each got an appreciation for the game. Then. And they were, they were a big part of the whole story. Well, that's a good job by you. Uh, so let's yeah, good job. by you. Good Mike. job by you. Yeah. Good job by you. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the cup real quick. And I'll let you go out. I kept you a while here, but we got to talk about the cup. So all that happens. And the interesting thing that's playing out in the Western conference is that everyone's losing, right? Like San Jose upsets right. Detroit, who is number one in the first round. Right. Uh, Vancouver upsets number two. And, and the cool thing about that series at Vancouver, Calgary, Vancouver is down three, one and win three straight overtime games, including, right. And right. in each of their stars scores one of the goals, right? I think it's Courtnell in game five, Linden in game six, and Burry in double overtime at game seven. Um, right. So everyone's kind of losing, and it's this Vancouver team that emerges. And Pavel Burry, obviously the star. I, in full disclosure, I was a huge Pavel Burry fan. Um, oh, and, uh, good guy to root for. What a player. And so the series starts, and McLean steals game one. And, uh, Yo, he sure did. Yeah, he totally steals it. I think he had 50 saves or something like that. Yep. Steals game yep. one, Rangers rebound game two. And then this is when this series starts getting amazing in game three. And I got to ask you what you remember about this. We all remember Bure Richter game four penalty shot. But what I think people forget right. is in game three, Bure scores an unreal breakaway goal in the first minute and then gets ejected before the end of the first yes. period for a high sticking call. And I remember thinking like, holy shit, I cannot believe Pavel Bure is getting tossed out of this game right now. Just unbelievable, right? Talk a little bit about just going to the cup in a, in a Canadian market in that building and what it was like when Bure scores the breakaway goal. What you remember about the penalty shot? Just let's just do it all. The two games in Vancouver, what you remember about them. And, and then we'll finish up with the, with with the disappointing game five and then ultimately game seven. Yep, yep. So by the time we get to Vancouver, I mean you know game one was complete theft. Game That's, two, oh. you know, order seemed to be restored, and so by you know game three, by game three, I think we're all thinking what what actually said on the air. He said, "Mikey, they're a bunch of sacrificial lambs," and we really did think that this was such a mismatch. That okay, the boy gets a breakaway. He's going to get some goals, but there's no possible way that Vancouver is going to win this series. And the question is only: is it going to be five games or is it going to be six games? And so you know, yeah, he, he you know he scores he scores a breakaway goal, but that's that's what the Russian Rocket does. Rangers win, and then I think the amazing thing about about the high sticking and getting thrown out was it was against Jay Wells. Jay Wells, yeah. Now, mm-hmm. like, Former Sabre. Like, like of all the of all the matchups, like if if, if the Rangers could have picked a guy on their team to take Pavel Bure off with him, 
Like, they would have been happy if Jay Wells got suspended for four games right. if he could have gotten Tom O'Brien <laughs> out of a game. So it was so, it was so crazy that, that, that Tom would kind of lose his cool on Jay Wells. Like, if he took a swing at Brian Leach or Mark Messier, okay. But, I, you know, it, it was really a, a terrible laugh, you know. Did it swing the series? I don't know. Um, you know kind of but, a technicality. Uh, probably, you know, did f- it, it, probably four minutes today, right? Because the rule then was right. if you drew blood on a high stick, you that's when the misconduct could carry with it. So probably today he gets four minutes. Yep. And then I was reading something funny. Right. I read something really funny. Do you, he threw – Don Cherry famously called it the mother of all elbows in the earlier in the Dallas series. I mean just – you can Google it later. It's like watch it. Like it's called the mother of all elbows. Now, thanks to Don yeah. Cherry calling it that. He got fined $500 for that elbow. You got to see this thing. He might have got yeah. 15 games in 2018, but like, wow. How big do you think the penalty sh- – do we dramatize how important the penalty shot save was because of the kind of play it is and the drama behind it? Like, do you really think it's – like, if he scores there, do you think it changes things all that much? Well, I, no, I think it. I think it does. And, you know, look. I mean, it's still only a two to one series at that point. Uh, you know, they're at home. Uh, if they if they win Game Four, it's two to two, and now you know this team that's been through so much psychologically, they have to pick themselves off the mat. So they never got to that point again until Game Seven. So yeah, I do think it was, and I, you know, and I think Richter Richter went to school on him in the in the All Star game, which right. is kind of crazy. And, and, uh, you know, look, I mean, look, I, I will argue forever that if I needed to win one game and I needed a goalie, and I, I think there's a guy up in your neck of the woods who could, who is a very good argument against what I'm about to say, but, but I think I would take Mike Richter. And he's not the greatest goalie of all time. And, you know, I'd have a hard time arguing he belongs in the Hockey Hall of Fame. But from 1994 to 1997, he was unbelievable. And, you know, the, the 94 series, the 96 world cup, the world 97 cup, yeah. series against the devils, you know, there, there was, there was nobody as good as him in a big game. And so, yeah, no, I think, I think it was big. I think it was very big because the, the, you know, look, give, give the Canucks full marks for, for what they were able to accomplish and how long they were able to stretch that out. But the weapon they had, the thing that scared you was Bure. And so, you know, he breaks in leech tackled, you know, Hog ties him, and you know it's him and Mike, and it was it was an epic moment, and I you know I, I don't think it should be belittled. I think it was I think it was a big save and a big moment. Well, I don't know about you, but a few years ago, when the Penguins and the Sharks were in the Cup, and the Penguins had never won a Cup in Pittsburgh, and they had the Game Five 1994 moment, right? The Cup is in the building. Yep. They only need to win tonight, and I can remember. I have a friend right. who's a season ticket holder. I remember calling and tell him this happened to the Rangers in '94. Game five, everyone thought it was the night, you know, and it's a crazy game because the Canucks get up 3 nothing, and the Rangers tie it 3-3. And I remember thinking right. the Garden is going nuts. And then again, Bray got a goal. Courtnell, I think, who hadn't scored all series, got a goal. Like just, bam, 6-3, they win that game. They win game six, and it gets back to game seven. This is, what, this is the question yep. for you. This is why you're perfect for this. A kid who grew up in Queens, yeah. loved the Rangers. Right. What did you wake up thinking the day of Game Seven? Where's your head at? Like, what's your mind? Speak for the collective of everyone who grew up loving this team and lived through 1940 and everything that had happened that spring. Where's your head when you wake up the day of Game Seven? Yeah, I think it was in the same place it was every time I went to to a Giant Super Bowl. It's that 
at the end of this day, it's either going to be the greatest feeling in the world, save the birth of my kids and my wedding day. I have to put that in. Right, right, right. Um, or, or it's going to be utter, utter devastation, I, as bad as you can possibly imagine. And we're sports fans, so we could talk about this stupid stuff. Like, it really matters whether your team wins or loses. But it does. It does. Yes. It does. You've invested your whole life in this, right? So, and by game seven, that's the way the city felt. You know, anybody who walked into that building that night knowing the Rangers were going to win, come on. There's no way you knew that. By then, the series was dead even. The Canucks didn't didn't steal games, you know, five and six. They won games five and six. And, you know, it, it was time. And, you know, there are a lot of stories about, about what went on as it was falling apart in games five and six for the Rangers. Some of them I can tell, some of them I can't. Uh, you know, suffice to say on the flight back, you know, there was talk of going to Lake Placid. There were two days between games. Right. Keenan wanted that, right? Keenan wanted to go to Lake Placid. Keenan wanted to go to Lake Placid and the players and Mark obviously became the spokesman said, we don't run from our problems. We're going back to New York. Step one, step two, as you all, as everybody remembers, Mike was, uh, negotiating with other teams during that Stanley Cup final. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. (laughs) Unbelievable. Um, and, and we all know he wasn't. And X's and O's guy it wasn't his thing. He was a motivator. He was a mind games player. And, you know, the guy who I think never got enough credit for them winning was Colin Campbell because before game seven, Coley convened an X's and O's meeting that basically straightened out all the stupid stuff the Rangers doing in games five and six. And, you know, all I'll say is that there were several players who went to Coley and said, you have to do this and we have to get Mike out of the room for you to do it. And, uh, and they did it and they straightened it out. Not, not to say that, Game seven wasn't a thrill ride of its own, but, uh, you know, they got back to playing the way that they would play. But going into that game, there's there's no way. I mean, I, I remember a lot of the guys, like, from the gag line were back. Those guys from the, from the 70s, the guys from the late 70s, and they were all – it's interesting, only hockey players, right? None of them were jealous of this. They were just praying that the Rangers would finally end this thing, that finally they wouldn't be asked anymore about why the Rangers would never win. And uh, but there was a lot of fear in the building that night. Game five was a coronation and everybody was giddy. Game seven was just just uh, what is going to happen tonight. In 2013, my brother played in a national championship game and uh, his whole career was really up to that point to find about finishing in second. He finished second three times in three right. different AAA state finals. He finished second in a, a prep. Yeah. And I remember waking up that day and the first thing I thought of was he's going to finish second again. And, yeah, can't and, finish second. And yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to look at him you know right. I'm gonna have to look him in the eye again after one of these games again and what am I gonna say this time? Like I right. just remember that was my mindset, like just being so paralyzed by the fear of that. You know, and I yeah. remember sitting yeah. in my seat yeah. and even when it was four nothing with like six minutes left, you know, thinking, but if they got one now, you know, and then they get another one yeah. then they might be able to pull. it's like I couldn't let go of that fear, and I, I when, when you right. were when you were explaining it, I kind of said it must have been kind of like that for Ranger fans because they're basically both game sevens, right? I mean, and, and they didn't play six before yep. the NCAA championship, but it's essentially yep. a game seven. Yeah, and um, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously tonight, and that's why, and that's why to go back to my guy again, the first goal by Brian Leach to me was colossal. Great pass. And it's an amazing goal if you watch yes. it again. And it's funny because I talked to Brian about it on Friday because I, I actually wrote a story for the program, for the commemorative program. And my whole my whole theme is, A, 
what the heck was he doing in the left circle when Zubov was already in the right circle? I mean, it's, it's game seven of the Stanley Cup final, and you've already lost games five and six, and your D partner on that shift, I don't know why they happen to be on that shift together, is taking a drop pass from Messier. So he's already at the right dot. And as a defenseman, and I played defense my whole life, I would have just gotten my butt so far back toward my own net. Like, like the, the, the only thing I would have been worried about was a counterattack. Right. But Brian Leach didn't think like that, so he's in the left dot. And Zubov freezes everybody, passes it across. The net is wide open. And Brian just calmly holds settled the puck, it. Yep. settles it down, and flips it into the open net like it's a practice at ride play land. And I, I said to him again, I said, what the heck were you waiting for? Like, I would have just closed my eyes and flailed at it, right? Yeah. You'd have fanned on it. it and he's like, well, you know, the ice was kind of shaky, so I had to settle it down. And I knew Gravy had the guy in front, you know, and Zuby had fr- frozen him. I had some time. I'm like, Brian, only that could go through your brain at a time like that. <laughs> that- the rest of the, while, while the garden is just like, shoot it, right. shoot it. You know, so it was. That goal- but after that goal, it was like, okay, it's going to be fine. We're, we're, we're okay. You know, that goal is kind of how they played that season, right? They were all in. Brian Leach was all yeah. in there, right? Yeah, he was in. all in, yeah. in, in that Just spot. Go. Just, Just go. go. And that's kind of how they played that season. And, you know, Trevor Linden got two goals to make it close. But I remember just never thinking they weren't going to win. Like you said, after it got to two nothing or whatever, you know, like it got to a point yeah. where it just never felt like it felt like they were in control in a way that they should be against that team. It, it's almost weird. Like after everything that had happened, I, n- I just never felt like they were not going to win it then, even with the goalie pole. It's, it's funny you say that. Cause I, I totally agree. I completely agree. Even after all that happened, the playoffs, the devils, everything. I, I agree with you by that point. It was like, it, you know, it, it's too much now. They're, they're, they're going to do it. It's over. It's finally over. Yep. Yeah. And that another great call. Uh, a few great calls. Uh, yeah. Uh, Marv yep. Albert had a great call. Um, the TV call was good. Um, just really, really just a great a great year, a great playoffs. Uh, let's get a couple quick ones along on these. What's the defining legacy? Like is, you spent the last week or whatever kind of looking back on this team. Like what is the defining legacy of the New York Rangers, not only as a hockey team, but as a New York City sports team? Ah, it's an interesting question. Um, I, look, I just think there's a special connection here. You guys know it in Buffalo. There's a connection between a hockey team and a city that just doesn't exist on a on a visceral level with other sports. You know, maybe we're just hockey nuts, and so we think that, but it's not true. But I, I think it's definitely true. You know, with with the Rangers, it's the cops and the firemen in the city. It's the blue collar people. Uh, I'll never forget walking out onto the street street uh, after they finally won and you know seventh avenue was shut down because people were just in the street and it was just hugging it was people hugging and kissing each other complete strangers it was you know i go back to my days with the yankees in the 70s when we didn't behave as well when we won sometimes but, like the Bronx Zoo. Uh, but new york but but new york knew how to win by then you didn't turn over cars you didn't light things on fire people just hugged each other and it was that was the love affair of the city and the Rangers at that time. And, uh, you know, you, you see it from time to time now that they're, they're dying for them to win again. You know how the people up there are dying for the Sabres to win. And, oh, yeah. uh, yeah, I, I think that's, that's the legacy and, and the way they did it. You know, it's not supposed to be easy in New York and that was not easy. And, you know, Mark came and he, he, he went through all the baptisms of fire that every superstar has to when they come here. 
he had to he had to fail first. He had to get booed, and uh, and then he came through. And look, seventy nine years, they're the only ones who have ever come through. It's an amazing thing. Yeah, and I always think of the parade Eddie Olchek heave ho two in a row. Right, that was the the line. I think. Yep. Right, and and so obviously that didn't happen because they were they were they were all in, like we said. But the Devils kind of rose from that, right, and win in '95, and and end up winning three of them. And what do you think for the Devils? Because that's a team you covered. How did lose? Was was that the ultimate kind of Aaron Boone game for them? You know, where Aaron Boone hits the home run, and Red Sox fans everywhere thought it can't get worse. But then the next, you know, but then it was the next year then finally where they get to kind of erase those demons. Is that kind of how you look at 94 for the devils? Is it something that had to happen to set that dynasty on course or something different? Yeah. Yeah. You know what? As a Yankee fan, I, I just hate to even think about how the world <laughs> spun off its axis after that. But, right. uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, nothing, nothing, nothing makes sense anymore. We, everything used to make sense. This doesn't make sense anymore. But with the devils, I think it's a, a little different because they, they hadn't gotten really close before that. You know, they had their crazy run in 88. They had some okay teams, but but they were clearly a t- team on the ascent. And when you think of, of what was there with Marty, Young, Niedermeyer, Stevens, those guys, and then obviously Lou and, and what he built, I, I think it was more like the Islanders losing to the Rangers in 79. It was just a speed bump on the way to what was going to happen. I, you know, I... Like I, I, I gotta believe that the Red Sox, kind of like the Yankees, just had to think deep down in their hearts. Maybe they were cursed and were never going to win. So maybe, maybe that was the rock bottom they needed. I, the Devils, it was devastating, but they were on, a, they were on a, uh, on an upward trajectory, and I think it was going to happen either that year or, or the next. John Dalapina is the group VP of communications for the National Hockey League, and he just spent a ton of time with me, breaking down. Well, we, we started way back when talking a little bit about the league and the young players oh, yeah. and the league, and we just had a lot of fun, I think, geeking out over the 1994 um, Stanley Cup playoffs. Is there anything you want to add? Is there anything you want to plug? Anything you want to – a Twitter account? Anything league-wise you want to get thrown out there? Anything? No, no. All, all good. You're, you're doing the job by you know, spreading the word. And uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it, we laugh about it here in New York all the time. You know, we've got to stop talking about something that's 25 years old. But it was a special time. Oh, so fun. And, uh, you know, and that's, those are the kind of memories that you know, make, make you keep coming back and saying, how great will it be the next time? Or how great will it be when the Sabres win? So, no, it's, uh, you're, you're, you're carrying, the, carrying the water, and that's, uh, that's what we need. John, thank you so much for this. I had a lot of fun. I really did. Thank you. My pleasure. Anytime, man. Thanks for having me. Thank John Dalapina and Jimmy Trena for being on the Sportscasters podcast this week. Don't forget, you can find this episode and every episode of this podcast at soundcloud.com slash sports casters. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and whatever pod catcher catches your podcasts. If you're having 
problems catching this podcast, email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com, and I'll do my best to take care of that for you. Uh, also, I want to plug some of my friends' shows. Don't forget about Greetings from Allentown, uh, the greatest one-man wrestling podcast in the world, featuring my Adams Division podcast partner, Peter Winson. New episodes of Greetings from Allentown are available every Thursday, and you can find more information about them at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter. And this week, he has an episode on an awesome episode of Saturday Night's Main Event from 1985. I can't wait to listen. Don't forget about my boy, Adrian Dater. I don't plug him every week here, but I should. He's at A Dater on Twitter. He does great work for BSN Denver, which is at BSN Denver on Twitter as well. I was on his podcast a few weeks ago. Adrian Dater is a true friend. Like from every, you know, I've done this for a few years now and I've met some people that I, I consider friends from the show. I consider Adrian a friend. Long after I do podcasting, I'll be texting and joking uh, with Adrian. He's my guy. I'll always be in his court. Uh, hopefully, we'll always do shows together. Uh, and I want to always plug his work because it's awesome. And he did a great piece on Cal McCarr and his emergence at UMass and potentially being an Avalanche player at the end of this year, if not next year, of course. Uh, so I really recommend his work. For more information, he's at Dater on Twitter. Just don't let him jinx you. Also, I was on episode number 513 of the Place to Be Nation podcast this week. Really a dream come true for me. I've been listening for five years or so to the Place to Be Nation podcast. Uh, Scott and Justin do a great job. They've been going chronological in order from the January 1985 MSG house show through the pay-per-views and Saturday night's main events. And I was on the episode 513 to talk about the January 1989 episode of the Madison Square Garden show. Uh, the Place to Be Nation podcast is just one of my favorites. Search for it. Place number two, bnation.com uh, for more information on that. Uh, really enjoy it. Love Justin and love uh, love Scott. Uh, I, I tweeted this at sports underscore caster, so you can find the link right in my Twitter uh, for more information about that. All right. Quick announcement. So we have a new kind of partner, uh, a really nice dude. His name is Matthew Zemek, and he – we linked up on Twitter. Uh, he had been retweeting some of my stuff, and he said, hey, you know, um, let's talk. Maybe we can do something you know, together, help each other. So we talked on the phone, and we decided that I would read some promos for them. They would read some promos for me. And um, we can get started with that today. Uh, Matt does some tennis stuff. He's also a big college football guy. Uh, we have a mutual friend named Mike Abelson uh, who did has done some work with Matt in the past. Uh, so I'm going to read their promo here today. And we're going to get this partnership flowing. I'll be tweeting about it. I already have tweeted about it. Uh, so look for that. But uh, let me tell you all about a new podcast and website that tennis fans will enjoy. Tennis with an Accents podcast is available on Google Play, Stitcher, and iTunes, where you can subscribe, rate, and review. The podcast is produced by Radio Influence, the home of over a dozen compelling podcast products on a wide range of topics. Uh, Tennis with an Accent podcast is released every Tuesday. Uh, the website for the podcast is tennisaccent.com, and that's managed and edited by Matt. Um, 
tennis with an accent doesn't report on every occasion when Roger Federer coughs or sneezes. When Roger Federer makes news, tennis with an accent will write about him. But the mission of TWAA is to offer original insights on all players across the spectrum of the sport. Boy, they got to get a hold of the uh, of the golf the golf writers, you know, let them know about Tiger Woods too. Um, Saqib is his partner, uh, Saqib Ali, and uh, he does a radio show as well. Um, the radio show I think airs in Boston. I'm sure you can find more information. Tennis, again, it's tennisaccent.com. Uh, it's your go-to stops for thoughtful and unique tennis coverage. And if you have a business which is trying to expand its global reach, consider sponsoring with them uh, the Tennis with an Accent podcast. Uh, some places to find them. On Twitter, you can find Saqib at S-A-Q-I-B-A. Uh, the podcast excel- itself is A-C-C-E-N-T underscore tennis. And you can find Matt at M-Z-E-M-E-K as well. All right. One last thing for me today, and it's one more thing that needs to be announced and discussed. Now, you've all heard of things like, oh, geez, what do they call them? Uh, Patreon. Um, You know, places where people who are independent like myself uh, can, I guess you would say, solicit funds uh, for what they do, offer something. Uh, It's become very popular. Podcasts will do this, and they'll... Say, you know, you pay a couple dollars a month, then you get this or you'll get that. And I've always been very resistant of it. Now, at the end of Season 8, we had Josh Josh Levine on the podcast. And uh, Josh, of course, is from Slate.com. He's an editor there. And the Hang Up and Listen podcast. And he's from New Orleans. And we had him on. And a couple of days later, I heard back from David and he, or from Josh and he said, I know this guy named David Stern who works for Slate, and I'm, I'm connecting him with you because they're doing this thing. And I, I kind of thought it might be like a partnership. And I was like, wow, the NBA former NBA commissioner is involved. Turned out not to be him. Different guy, different David Stern, but whatever. Uh, and I, I talked to David, and I told him, you know, it didn't sound like it was for me. I thought it was a partnership, and really it just seemed like another version of Patreon. To some de- degree it is that, but... It just didn't seem like it was for me. And he came back to me and he said, would you be one of the original launch partners? And the guys from Hang Up and Listen will give you a commercial, a 30-second ad, which they'll play on the show. And I thought about it, and I just I just didn't think I could turn that down. I, I don't know if I want to do this, even still to this moment, where, where a lawyer right now is drawing up my user agreement. Uh, but I'm going to I'm going to try. I'm going to try. And I think this is the plan. I'm going to uh, the the service is called Supporting Cast, and Slate uh, did a press release on it. And I'll re- I'll read some of it. Slate is announcing a new service called Supporting Cast, which lets podcasters and podcast networks offer members only versions of their shows. If that idea sounds familiar, it should. Ad free shows and bonus audio content have been a core part of Slate Plus for years. In fact, our members-only podcast offerings are the single largest reason Slate Plus has grown to 50,000 subscribers. Now, we're making it easier for other podcasters to launch membership programs of their own. And we're proud to announce two podcast networks as launch partners, Critical Frequency, whose membership program you can check out now, and 5x5, which will be launching next. Two independent podcasts, Burn It All Down and The Sportscasters, will also be rolling out membership offerings built on our platform shortly. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to charge $2 a month 
And for $2 a month, you'll get two bonus interviews that won't appear on episodes of the Sportscasters. And you'll get each episode I record that month of the Sportscasters exclusively for 24 hours. That's really all I can offer. There's no ads, so I can't offer ad-free. And I'm hesitant of things like this because of what happened with Football Nation. When Don and I did the football-only show, if you've been with me that long and you remember it, in 2013, Don and I had a contract with a website called footballnation.com. And we did, once a week, we did an exclusive podcast for them that was football-only. It was similar to the structure of the sportscasters, and we do one football interview, our first episode at Peter King. And we did really well with it, and we, things were doing great. And then, of course, I got very sick in 2013. And it happened right around the time of the conference championship games in the Super Bowl. And we sort of couldn't deliver the end of that contract. And they were great about it. You know, they understood. And they were even willing to extend to do a second season. But I kind of said, you know, I think it's best for me to step away and not do this. And since then, the reason I've never done a Patreon is I've always once didn't really think anyone would sign up. And two, just kind of thought like well, what if something happens again? You know, what if my colon, what if I'm gone and I'm taking people's money and and what can I do? So I've explained that to the people at Slate, uh, but I just felt like they made me an offer that I couldn't refuse. When am I ever going to have the chance to have a commercial on Hang Up and Listen for nothing again? When will I ever be in a Slate, you know, a Slate press release like that? I just, I said in 2019, I wanted to start cashing in favors. And this isn't exactly that. But the reason I wanted to start cashing in favors is because I want to expand the audience of this podcast. You know, I don't want to just be talking. Like, I think the interviews in here are so good today, I feel like. Like, I have a passion for the work. I really do. I believe in it. And I got to try, right? I got to try my best. And if you can pledge $2 a month to this, all I can do is thank you. And if you don't, I understand. And if after four months or five months, I don't like it or I don't think it's working out, I'll just stop. You know, I don't think there's any time frame I have to do this. I'm going to give it an honest effort. I'm going to do my best to do it. I'll, I'll try to do some interesting things maybe with the bonus interviews. And, you know, for 24 hours, the podcast will be exclusive to people who are willing to pay for it. Is this the greatest deal in the world? Probably not. Can can you live without it? Absolutely. Would I appreciate it if you did it? It would mean the world to me. I don't expect to get rich on this. I never did. I do this podcast because I love to do it because it's fun. I just love to hear. I just love more people to hear it, right? Like, I think it's good work, so I want people to hear it. And it's hard It's hard for me to promote it. I don't even like saying my name in the beginning, right? So I don't know. I figured I had to try, and the timing seemed right to try, and I couldn't turn down the commercial. I just couldn't. I, didn't, I just didn't think I could say no to that. I hate asking people for money. I hate taking other people's money. They wanted me to charge, Slate wanted me to charge more than $2. I'm not going to do that. Two's enough. That's $1 an interview. And then for a bonus, you get the shows that I put out 24 hours ahead of time exclusively. 
I don't think I'm going to put Paul to college based on anything I do on the sportscasters, and I don't want to. I just want... I, I want the people to hear it, to be able to tell other people that they heard it, and other people will be like, oh yeah, I heard it too, or something. Uh, but that's that. There'll be more information. We'll be back next week. Chase Miss